As faculty and staff, we have a responsibility to ensure that all learners can be successful in our classrooms. Part of this responsibility includes creating a safe environment for learning and creating an environment that is inclusive to all learners. Join us as we explore what does it mean to create an inclusive classroom with Dr. Julie McCown, Associate Professor of English, and Dr. Scott Knowles, Associate Professor of Theater History. Thank you all for stopping by to, to talk about inclusivity in the classroom. Um, you know, I'm really curious, why is inclusivity important uh, in higher ed? Well, that's an extremely broad question. <laughs> I, I try to ask broad <laughs> yes, questions. You did. Uh, that one requires a little bit of thought, I think. For me, just on the base level of making sure that students can engage in a process in a classroom is first and foremost to classroom decorum, classroom management, all of that is is there to ensure that everyone can be in a position to learn. So if they do not feel comfortable with the environment that we're in, they cannot learn. So it's it's very important for that basic reason, but so many other reasons and in so many different specific circumstances, it matters differently. Yeah, and I think you can't really have learning without students having that foundation of feeling a sense of belonging, feeling like they have a place here that they feel comfortable and relaxed and safe enough to do the kind of intellectual work that accompanies you know, real meaningful learning. So it's kind of like the whole you need food, water, shelter idea. But in learning, we also need – we not only need to have those things – <laughs> but I think but those we things also, would count as belonging, yeah. like being sure that students have those kind of basic needs, food, clothing, shelter. I think that's part of inclusivity, you know, more of a sort of physical thing, too. But I think absolutely. And I know SU has a great food bank. Um, I've, I've worked with them a little bit um, to help students get that. But But when it comes to the classroom environment – what steps do you take to make the, the environment inclusive? Well, so for example, about the food bank, um, we don't necessarily always know what our students need. Um, and unless they are comfortable enough talking to you about what it is they need, you're never going to be able to hit, help them get, get that. So when we talk about food insecurity, um, an inclusive environment does not mean that I, the professor, need to provide food for all of my students, although I right. do do that upon occasion. Like that does happen. I provide some muffins, treats, candy bars, whatever the case might be. Um, but what it does mean is hopefully – and I actually have – this as part of my inclusion statement that if a student is food insecure or worried about housing or something is going on outside their life, that they can come and talk to me. And I also make it clear in that that I will try to help them to the best of my ability. And one of the ways that we can help is making sure that you as a faculty member know how the food bank operates. So when that student comes and tells you, I can't afford food, I, I can't eat, that's why I can't focus in class or, or I'm falling asleep all the time or whatever the case may be, you can say, hey, here's a resource. Um, there's a food bank here and, and you are a perfect candidate for that. Uh, so let's take you down there and get you set up with some food so you, you can eat. Um, so knowing about those other resources outside and within the institution, but outside in the larger Cedar City community um, is a great step forward in trying to create an inclusive environment. 
But the first step is the student has to trust you enough to be able to tell you that because that is not an easy thing to come up to somebody and say, I'm food insecure or I am starving to death. I don't have food um, or I don't have housing or I can't get medical care or the medical care I'm getting is is homophobic and is treating me awfully and I don't know what to do. Uh, you have to build a rapport and a relationship in the classroom with those students in order for them to feel safe enough to come to you. And then when they come to you, you have to actually be able to help, which does take a little bit of work on our part. And I think that's a great point that it, they have to feel comfortable, but then you also have to know the resources to assist them. So one can't happen without the other. It's great if you know the resources, but if they don't feel comfortable, it doesn't mean anything. And if they come to you and you don't know the resources, Right. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah, I, I have a list point. of resources that I put uh, on a Canvas page. Mm. So the first intro module that has like the syllabus, my info, all of that information. I also have a separate page that just lists all of these different resources, both on-campus resources, but then community resources. Because then if a student you know doesn't feel comfortable coming to me and saying, I'm food insecure, or I'm having this issue, they can at least access that list and find help that way. So yeah. I kind of, but, and then it's also if a student does disclose something to me, I have ready in my canvas shell, I can just click and be like, oh, well, here's this resource and let's, you know, find out what that's going to like get you the help that you need. Access points. Yes. Also very important to inclusion, making sure that students can access information multiple mm -hmm. ways uh, to get what they need, whatever that happens to be. I think that would be great to, if you're up, or if you're willing to, to steal your page and put it out into the uh, Canvas community because we can make it to where just SEU uh, faculty can download that page of resources yeah. and, and share that in their courses. And I think it's important for SEU faculty to know that regardless of your modality, you get a Canvas shell. Yeah, absolutely. So if you're teaching face-to-face, -face, you get a Canvas shell. It's your choice how you use it. You know, But that might be a great place to – throw in your syllabus and throw in uh, or those resources for students as well. So, yeah, uh, I know, I know both of you have presented on uh, inclusivity and inclusiveness in the classroom. What are some things that you've seen faculty do either here at SU or elsewhere that really stand out to you as ways that either built that rapport with the student so that they felt comfortable coming to the professor? Um, because I, I know we've had conversations where even something as simple as office hours, intimidate students because they think, oh, office hours, that means the professor's working. I shouldn't bother them when it's mm -hmm. the complete opposite. That's what that time's meant for. Um, so what have you seen in other institutions or, or here at SU that stand out to you as great ways to help build that rapport or create that sense of safety in the classroom? I think that kind of speaking to that hesitancy that students often have, like to come to office hours, um, I found I know I have done this, and I know others in the English department have done this, where you just require sort of a low stakes assignment where they have to come meet with meet with me one on one, um, and I'll usually cancel up to like a week of classes, and instead of actually having class that week, it's like you'll just sign up for a ten or fifteen minute conference and come meet with me, and giving that kind of external incentive of this is part of your grade, but it's not that scary, you know, then that gets the student into my office and then they'll realize, oh, 
this is what it is. Like, this isn't that scary. I like your office. You have cool stuff on your walls. And so it kind of helps break down that barrier, but it doesn't seem so intimidating to come. So I think having that external incentive just to initially get over it is, especially for, you know, freshmen, sophomore students, I think can be really helpful. That's a great one. I, I do that with a few assignments in different classes, but not all the time. Um, I, some of the most basic things that you hear about in education actually, in my opinion, matter the most. Learning the students' names <laughs> goes a really long way. <laughs> I didn't way. even think to say that because that's yeah. so obvious to it me, is, but it's, it's but true. It matters yeah. a lot. Like if you aren't making an effort to actually remember your students' names um, – and I usually – my mode of teaching, I'm very self-deprecating. Like that's kind of who I am in the classroom. I deprecate myself in order to get the students to laugh and become more more comfortable. Um, so I make fun of myself when I forget the name. And that also helps make them more comfortable with correcting me if I get something wrong, right? Uh, and that's kind of something that I think is important um, because part of the boundary is, oh, professors, they're educated and, and they have all the power and, and everything else. So little things like that go a long way to humanize a professor. Um, and I think that helps with inclusion because mm -hmm. then the students see you not just as this monolithic idea of educator who is big and scary. Uh, and to be perfectly frank, my freshman students all think I'm terrifying. Uh, <laughs> and then by the time they get to their like junior year, they're like, no, Scott is a cinnamon roll. Um, we can roll right over him. It's not a problem. And mm -hmm. they'll be fine. And, and they get there eventually. But I scare them initially. I don't know why, uh, but apparently I do. Um, and it's, a, it's just so hard to strike the balance between the professional professionalism of everything, as well as the I'm a person and it's okay to be a person here of it, uh, that it that is everywhere in there as well. Um, so any anything you can do to humanize yourself, I always like to jump on self-deprecating. I actually offer extra credit for people to find typos in Canvas courses or assignments or whatever I give them. Um, and then they give me the typos and they think I'm going to be like offended and upset. It's also mm -hmm. a great time to model, hey, Everybody makes mistakes, and that's all right. What I don't tell them is that I leave a lot of them in there intentionally uh, because it's been years at this point, so they're all fixed. I have to manufacture it a little bit now, but that's okay. Right. And then they fix it and get a few extra credit points and realize, oh, he makes mistakes too, and that's all right. Uh, and we can correct each other, and maybe that's a good thing. It also helps to model that kind of behavior. Um so I do a lot of things like that, but names, really the, the stupid basic things that they tell you to do. I, I'm honestly not a huge fan of the getting to know you games. I don't know if you have thoughts on that. Um, maybe because it just feels disingenuous in most cases. Like it's, oh, this is the thing we must do yeah. as opposed to something more realistic. So I, I find like on first weeks an activity-based project that we're all going to do together and we're going to do it in teams so you get to know a few people uh, and then we're going to present it in front of the class and we start seeing personalities. And of course, I mean, I teach theater, so there's a lot more of that going on anyway. Uh, so it's a little bit ready built into our programs, but it's always a good thing to do, like come in with an activity that's not just silliness, but also directed towards the content mm -hmm. uh, and gets people engaged showing who they are versus tell me who you are right now in this five-minute session. Mm -hmm. um, so I like those kinds of things too. Yeah, the the get to know you, uh, I, I teach a lot online. And so I try to do something different with my introduction discussion just because it's the whole, what can we do different, you know? Um, 
But but I think you brought up a really good point is that 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 safety can also be student to student interactions. It's not necessarily always faculty to student that can create that safe environment. But if they get to know others in their class, especially your freshmen who come in <laughs> afraid or or whatever, and and thinking about it in terms of how can I make help those students make connections to other students so they feel like they belong here at SUU and we see, I know that uh, we're bringing in Peter Felton as our guest speaker uh, for our learning and development in August. And his big thing is it's not always the faculty members responsibility to make those connections, but Mm -hmm. to help students make those connections between each other. So I think Mm -hmm. that's, that's important. You you bring up a great point also about the, um, the, the getting to know you activities and, and when students kind of see through that and are like, Oh, that thing again, this is mm-hmm. the third time I've done it in the third class I've had today. Um, and so what barriers do you sometimes see that faculty run into when they try to be inclusive in the classroom or maybe aren't necessarily I don't want to say opposed. Some might be opposed to being inclusive in the classroom, but what barriers do you see uh, in higher education? One thing that just kind of springs to mind as a possible barrier is I know a lot of professors, and I'm often sometimes guilty of this myself, we don't want to relinquish any control. Like we're sort of control freaks. We want to be in control, sort of, you know, not puppet master sounds bad, but like, you know, sort of just – you know, controlling everything that's happening. And I think a lot of times being inclusive is trusting our students more, is ceding some of that control to them. And that can be a sort of counterintuitive move. It can also feel scary to, you know, let students sort of dictate some of the things in class or let them, you know, I often have very sort of free-form discussions in my classes. And sometimes students take those discussions in really weird way, really weird rabbit paths. And like sometimes that's excellent and awesome. And it has like way better conversations than I could have ever engineered myself. And sometimes they're honestly a bit of a train wreck. And that's just kind of what happens when you, you know, are offering that sort of control to students. Um, but you just have to sort of trust in the process and trust in them as as people and you know, people who want to be engaged and learn with each other. Another thing that I do, and I don't do it in every single class, uh, and sometimes I do it as a triage sort of situation when a class is going in a bad direction, um, as a community that's coming together to discuss topics over and over and over again. And that's collaborative contract, which is another tool or a social contract. There's a bunch of different names for it. And I let the students do that. Like they get to decide what the rules are and boy, do they love to decide what those rules are. Um, If we miss something, I am often like, yeah, no, let me throw up another one. You might not have thought of that. We should all think about Um, my favorite. And as I'm sure this podcast will play out, uh, I talk too much. Um, And I tell my students this, I talk too much. And when I go to meetings, I write at the top of my notepad or on my computer screen, whatever I'm taking notes on it in big letters, W-A-I-T. 
which stands for Why Am I Talking? <laughs> I, li- I like um, that. I'm going to use that. <laughs> it's a great thing. And when I see it, I remember, oh, this isn't all about Scott. <laughs> Maybe other people have things to talk about. Even when I'm the professor, I try to remember that. But again, it makes it jovial. And again, it's a self-deprecating move, right? I'm going to tell you something that I struggle with and uh, a way I try to work on that. And there's always some students, like every, we always have students who are talking too much, like that, that always happens. How do we help them to understand that without calling them out and making them feel like they don't belong, like you shouldn't be here because you talk too much? Well, I talk too much too. <laughs> Let me teach you some things I learned about that that have helped me become a better person mm-hmm. for everyone. Uh, and off we go. And see, now, right now is when I would look down and <laughs> say, <I'll> shut up. <laughs> <laughs> you should designate a student like with a sign yeah. for you. There you go. And just in class, they can hold it up. (laughs) Ooh, I would have to trust that student a lot, right? But that would go to building that inclusion. It would, it would, but it makes me nervous to your point about, no, don't take away my control. (laughs) I have the microphone. (laughs) Well, I I mean, I know that the sage on the stage approach is Mm -hmm. is very common in education, whether it's K-12 or higher ed. I came from the K-12 world, um, and it's hard for an instructor at any level to take that step back and let the students lead. Um, how did you learn to do that and take that step back or, or how you're still learning to do that? Um, For me, some of it was just built. Like I was fortunate enough, like that was just built into how I was trained to teach in my doctoral program and my master's program, both sort of explicitly in pedagogy classes, but then also watching professors that I admire, watching how they teach and seeing how they would, you know, be sort of ceding that control to to students or, you know, not, not always being the, the sage on the stage kind of a, a, person. Um, But then I've also seen, um, you know, just with colleagues seeing what they're doing with sort of alternative models of instruction, like a a big thing, at least in in English and in literature is the blank syllabus. I don't know if y'all have heard of the blank syllabus where, you know, you just leave spaces open in your course schedule and students get to select the texts that we're going to discuss and look at. Um, And I think that's another way, like, if you're not someone who necessarily wants to, you know, turn over a lot of the discussion to a student, you know, you can turn over text selection to students, and that's still giving them that choice or giving them that kind of degree of agency to kind of direct the way the way that the classroom goes. So some of it was, you know, how I was taught how to teach, and some of it is just, you know, seeing what other colleagues are doing and going, oh, that's really cool. I'm going to incorporate that. So I, I know that you, and, and you bring up the syllabus, uh, Dr. Kramer, Bree Kramer, and uh, Jen McKenzie, both did a presentation two years ago, three years ago at one of the learning and development events about making the syllabus inclusive. Um, I've tried a few of those things with like the late policy, like, you know what? I'm not going to put a late policy in our first activities could be, you all figure out what you think would be appropriate and we'll go from there. What other suggestions would you have on making the syllabus inclusive beyond uh, leaving blanks or, or providing links to resources, things like that. Flexible deadlines, kind of going to your point you were speaking of, flexible deadlines, I think, have been something I've started doing in the last year or so. Um, and I think 
having that flexibility and, you know, students have really responded well to that. Like I've had multiple students go out of their way to tell me that flexibility helps me tremendously. Um, and it's usually sometimes depending on the assignment, it might be, you know, an extra two to four days grace period. Other times it might be, oh, you have a week to get it in. Um, but having that sort of explicitly stated uh, flexible deadlines in your syllabus, I think goes a long way to kind of both easing students' anxiety, which helps them you know, perform better, but then they also feel like it's better able to fit into their lives. If, you know, because of course, I always tell my students, like, I know my class is not the only thing you have going on in your life. You have other classes, you have, you know, you have jobs, sometimes multiple jobs, you have families, you know, there's a lot of obligations besides just my class. And I'm always mindful of trying to help, help students succeed, knowing that they have a bajillion other things going on besides just me and my class. I, I don't do quite the flexible deadlines because for some reason my theater students will just turn it in on the last day of that flexibility That's seemingly true. no matter yeah. what I do. Um, but what I do instead, uh, which is just another alternative to the exact same thing, is I explain the world of extensions, how to ask for one, and also that you can ask anyone for one. This is a thing that doesn't just work in my class. Like it's it's kind of like the shadow skills. syllabus thing where some of our students come in and they know that because of life experiences. And some of our students come in and they don't know that at all. They've never even heard of an extension. They didn't know it was a thing that existed. Um, I've had some students actually complain that I tell everybody about them. Um, <laughs> and I'm always a little bit suspicious when that happens. I'm always like... Why are you concerned that I'm telling people about extensions? It's insider knowledge. <laughs> yeah, and their thought was that it it makes people just take too much advantage of the extensions. And I say, yeah, but have you ever met somebody who doesn't know what one is and how devastating that can be because they think there is no grace, <laughs> that there can't be an option to still pass this class because they know there's no way to get that final paper in or that mid midterm project in. Um, and then they usually come around to it, but it's, it's educating people who have no idea how university works and letting them know that extensions are a thing. You can ask other professors for them. They might say no, yeah. but they might say yes. And you're always like, there's no rule against asking. Mm -hmm. Like you can ask. I would say, what's the worst that happens? You get told no. Yep. yep. That but I think be even worst. beyond higher education, I think teaching, especially the sort of traditional college student, you know, 18, 19 year old, you know, they're not always great at advocating for themselves. And so I think doing things like extensions and walking students through how to ask for extensions and how to handle that, you know, that's a really important life skill for anyone, especially speaking back to inclusivity. Like part of inclusivity is like, you know, being able to say, this is what I need. This is what is going to help me succeed. And so I love that you kind of walk your students through, here's how to ask for an extension, not just from me, but from any professor on campus. And they do have to be reminded, like I have a step process, right? Like you have to email me the thing. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily need to know why. If you want to share it, you can, but you can also just say, I've had some personal things come up mm -hmm. and I'm not gonna be able to get that assignment in. And then the most important part so that I have fewer emails is you must tell me when you can turn it in. Mm -hmm. Like, tell me that because then I can just say yes. And then we're done and we don't have to do a back and forth. And they do forget that occasionally. So they have yeah. to get reminded of that a few times. But it, it is good educationally to let them learn to advocate for themselves, mm -hmm. um, which is important for, for inclusion in the classroom. Well, and I was just thinking that, you know, whether it's having to discuss and decide which textbook or which book you're going to 
investigate this semester or communicate that I need an extension. It all comes down to that being able to communicate. And, and mm-hmm. again, we go back to that whole concept of the student has to feel safe. Um, speaking of safe, I, I know that with our learning and development in August and then throughout the year, uh, Pride Alliance provides safe zone training. Why would a SU faculty member or staff member attend a safe zone training? Um, I think the the main reason it is it does provide kind of a basic level you know instruction um, about the LGBTQIA plus community. Goes over some definitions and terms and some sort of best practices. It's also a space where you know a faculty have specific questions about things that have come up for them with students. They're free to ask. They kind of get connected to those resources. Um, so you know if you're one of those faculty members who's like, oh, I want to help, but I don't know what the resources are, Safe Zone Training can give you those resources. Um, and then also on the more materialistic side, you can then get you know the little Safe Zone sticker you can put outside your office and the Safe Zone t-shirt. If you are a t-shirt person, I know, Scott, you're not a t-shirt I'm person, not. but but you, know, you get those kind of uh, those sort of materialistic markers, which speaking back to how you can communicate inclusivity to students, you know, if, if a student sees that you have the Safe Zone sticker on your nameplate outside your office or or, you know, if they see you wearing the Safe Zone shirt on Fridays as your red shirt, you know, that's a, you know, visual way of signaling to the students that you are a safe space for them. Yeah. Or at minimum, you took the effort to go to a two-hour training session to try to learn to a try. little bit yeah. about who they are. And that matters a lot. Yeah. No, and I think that's important. You know, safe zone training is not about like all you need is two hours and then you shall be an expert about the LGBTQ (laughs) community. No, it's just showing that you're willing to to listen and learn and be open to ideas. It. uh, I know that when I worked with Danica on the summit on belonging, we had a long conversation that we have those that just need to get the basic terminology all the way up to those that want to apply those skills and those assets. And so I I have attended the safe zone training, uh, loved it. And I know that it gave me a lot more information on things I wasn't aware of uh, concepts and and terms. So I can see where it's extremely beneficial. So, uh, so yeah, uh, I don't know how often they happen per semester uh, so we usually do at least one official one each semester that we advertise broadly. So we're obviously doing one with yep. the, the learning and development workshops at the beginning of the, uh, the working contract for faculty members this year. Uh, but we also take requests. So you can email the Pride Alliance at any point and request a training for your department or for a different organization on campus. Uh, we generally try to get more than a handful of people in there. So sometimes we get a couple requests and say, hey, everybody, yeah. let's go ahead and combine this into one big group that we can then have a larger conversation with. But we have also done it for two or three people when they needed it and there was nobody else around that were, were interested in taking safe zone training at that time. So uh, if we don't have a safe zone training coming up on a calendar anytime soon, email the Pride Alliance and uh, we will find a training time for you. Yeah. And we also do trainings for students. So it's yes. not just for faculty and staff. So if yeah. a faculty member, if they have a class where maybe there's a lot of content related to LGBTQIA community and they think, hey, 
you know, I'm not an expert in this, but I think my students could benefit from this training. That's also something that Pride Alliance can do. That's great. I didn't know about the student aspect. I, I knew about the yeah. faculty staff. Yeah, we've but, trained you know. the RAs. We've trained writing center tutors. So, yeah. Outstanding. When we do plays that have queer themes, we often actually have Pride Alliance come in and do a uh, a training of the safe zone training for the cast before we get going, which kind of sets a nice tone for the performance and makes sure that everybody kind of at least has a base level of knowledge for the work that we're about to engage with. So it is, it's quite helpful for a lot of different groups. Well, and I think that brings up a great point of, again, going, going all the way back to the beginning of our conversation of creating a safe environment helping students understand what creates a safe environment um, is important. So we're, we're kind of coming to the end of our time today, but I wanted to give you guys an opportunity to share anything else that you'd like to bring up for SU faculty or faculty in higher education. Uh, this podcast is now being downloaded on multiple continents, uh, which is exciting. Um, so it's not just uh, here in, in Utah that it's being downloaded. It's being downloaded across the United States and other continents. Um, so I'm really curious, what else would you provide to higher education as to the importance of inclusive inclusivity in higher ed, in the classroom, or any other thoughts you have, I guess? <laughs> this is where I'm going to wait. So, so much uh, about inclusion for me comes down to a a couple of key ideas. Um, one of them is empathy, that that we care about the people that are in our world, whether that's our students, our colleagues, our larger community, whoever it is, that we, we actually care about other people, A. Um, and then B, that we are willing to listen to people that are different than ourselves. Um, hear them out and have genuine conversations, not conversations where we're trying to catch somebody off guard or where we're trying to prove you're wrong and I'm right or anything like that, but a genuine conversation where I care about that person even when their beliefs or thoughts or even actions don't necessarily match my own. Um, how do I communicate with them? How do I listen to them, figure out their position and hopefully help them figure out my position and, and maybe grow together? Um, so yeah, I think empathy and then making sure you listen is very important. No, I love that. That was such a great answer. Um, I'm tempted to just be like, ditto, same. <laughs> um, but to add something else, to kind of bring it back to the classroom, bring it back to you know what you're actually teaching, um, I would also say you know inclusivity is also comes up in actually what you're teaching, the subjects you're teaching, the, you know, the voices, the, the scholars, the researchers that you're citing or having students read. Um, so I think that's always a good recommendation, you know, like look at your syllabus, look at the, the books, the assignments you're giving students, and, you know, make sure there's a variety of voices, a variety of backgrounds and experiences in what you're sharing with students, uh, because that's, that's another kind of key concept. Like you can create that warm, inviting, environment where students feel safe, but if you have a very homogenous reading list, that's going to be doing students a bit of a disservice. Completely agree. And that's something I know with my online teaching courses, I've, I've tried to do 
-hmm. but it can be tough. It's not, it's, it's not tough. an easy, especially yeah. when it's easy for me to say as an English professor, because I can diversify the literature I'm teaching a lot more easily than I would imagine a chemistry professor. That might be a bit of a higher, a bit of a larger task for them to tackle. But there are opportunities out there. And I think that's the important thing to remember is, it, and it's not something you should just overnight all of a sudden, <laughs> re everything's revamped in one night, yeah, it takes that, time. Even just making tiny incremental changes. So yeah. it's not like you have to overhaul your entire syllabus, your entire reading list in one fell swoop, but maybe swap out one reading for a different one and then slowly kind of build that diversity in your syllabus. Great. Well, thank you both for taking the time today to talk about inclusivity. For those listening, if you're at SU, be on the lookout for the Pride Alliance Safe Zone trainings, as well as other opportunities through CTI to learn about how to make a syllabus inclusive or uh, just other inclusive, inclusivity trainings that are going to be offered throughout the year. And uh, Danica Summit on Belonging. Other, there's, there's so many opportunities just to learn. And, and again, you may not go out and implement those ideas immediately but it'll give you ideas to think about and do small increments. Thank you both. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on our conversation about inclusive classrooms. In our next episode, we're going to continue our conversation with Dr. Julie McCown about AI, artificial intelligence, chat GPT, being AI, and Claude. We're gonna explore what does that mean in higher education going forward and should we be afraid of it or embrace it?